0: Emma Bruner and this episode of Real Foot Forward is sponsored by ATA. Visit atacpa.net to learn more about the services they offer for individuals and organizations.
1: ATA, your long-term accounting partner. Today's guest is Jeff Kolath, Executive Director of Stacks Museum. So this is Scott Williams, the host of Real Foot Forward, where every single week we explore the history, the people, and the culture of our home here in West Tennessee. That music that you heard was a little different than our intro music that we usually have. That's because I have a really special uh, guest today, uh, Jeff Coleth from Stax Museum, who's going to tell us a little bit about that song we heard green onions and and explain to us uh, the the significance of green onions for um, stacks but first of all uh, welcome jeff hey scott thanks for having me great to be here so you're from wanaki wisconsin did i say that right wanaki <laughs> wanaki with Wisk- around here we don't we don't talk to a lot of people from wanaki very often
0: we're the only wanaki in the world so there's there's <laughs> you know there's more of us more of us now than there were when i you know, left town in the late 90s. But uh, yeah, it's just a, it's just the um, on the north side of uh, Madison, the state capital where the university is and, and obviously state state government and such. So pretty close to a larger metropolitan area, but used to be an agricultural community and now is, you know, a, th- a thriving suburb.
1: Well, I I suspect that uh, having the job that you have now, you've always been um, a fan of music. And so, t- tell me a little bit about growing up and and the role music played in your life. Sure. Um,
0: yeah, I mean, I, I my line always is I have always been more interested in the people that uh, more people more interested in the people that are on the back of the record than those who are on the front. I really got started. Uh, I'm an Allman Brothers fan from way back. It was really, I mean, basically my first favorite band essentially, and then started um, trading live tapes, bootlegs, or whatever you want to call them, and then really trying to, I started, you know, inherited a record player and inherited a bit of a record collection and then started to collect um, anything that Dwayne Allman had played on, which was a lot of studio sessions that he had done in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. And really became sort of obsessed with that Muscle Shoals sound and then, you know, the two studios, Fame Studios, and then later the studio at uh, 3614 Jackson Highway, which Dwayne did sessions at both. And that's where I discovered, um, you know, he had done a record with Aretha Franklin there. I mean, I knew who Aretha was, but everything sort of moves forward and stops with him and then kind of goes backwards and really just doing research about them and his influences just discovered all kinds of different music but really it was kind of this that was my first um, exposure to southern soul music and then kind of worked my way up uh, highway 72 and ended up in uh, memphis tennessee and learned about Stax and royal studios and high records and then later about american studios and all the other great spots here in the city and all the amazing artists that, you know, called Memphis home and folks that came in here and and cut records, you know, with, 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 you know, in my opinion, the best, the best session musicians there ever have been. Um, you know, really at Stacks, Royal and American. That's just those three bands are just incredible. So um, And so you're
1: developing your research and you're learning about all this and having an appreciation for it long before you ever knew that you were gonna have the job that you have.
0: Oh yeah. I mean, I did. And I when I was in grad school, I did my research on solo music and and so civil rights in Indianapolis, Indiana. And so really did a lot of oral histories there and then worked in military history for eight years and worked with a lot of veterans and really discovered how music could be a bridge, especially within the Vietnam veteran community in Madison, Wisconsin. It's a, you know, that was a staunch anti-war city. Some of the biggest campus protests in the country were at the university of Wisconsin, in 1967, and then 1970, especially. And we really discovered that <clears throat> music could be a bridge between you know, not just simply protesters and veterans, but within that veterans community, the divides between, you know, political, cultural, social divides that existed amongst the Vietnam veterans community, those wounds were still very raw. It was hard to have, you know, a lot of times it was hard to have discussions um, about service. And so we, myself and uh, these uh, two guys that worked at the University of Wisconsin, Dr. Craig Werner and Doug Bradley, Vietnam veteran, really um, discovered that music can be this bridge and really can be a conversation starter. So seeing what music can do to sort of provide that foundation for a conversation. And yeah, you might think you might not agree. You might not love Jimi Hendrix, but everybody knows who Jimi Hendrix is. You know, there's still going to be some divide about music, country, soul, rock and roll, whatever it might be. But there's still a way. But everybody loves credence. That's what we learned. Um, <laughs> but there's a um, there was really something there. So coming here to stacks, um, it really was a. I was able to kind of take all of these pieces and put them together, um, and then freak everybody out with how much I knew about you know ra- records and ran- random recording sessions and so on and so forth. So you know, in a lot of ways, it I, I can. I can be a record nerd one day and then I can do something different the next day. And so it's a pretty interesting job to have. That's for sure.
1: But you, so you were actually though, working in the museum business. Um, yeah. Before yep. that. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah.
0: I worked, uh, worked at the Wisconsin veterans museum for eight years um, where I did sort of a little bit of everything, uh, mostly public programming, but then um, after a key staff member left, sort of took over the, the artifact collection and was in charge of, you know, um, working with donors and doing, you know, interpretation and so on. And, um, you know, it just was really, it was a remarkable experience. And, you know, we, my wife, my wife worked there too. And um, her, one of her favorite volunteers and one of our favorite people just passed away the other day, a 90 year old Korean war veteran, and, um, you know, we still have such fond memories of all of those folks and really just sitting down and, and, and you know, it was hard being a yo- you know, younger person than what I am now and talking to older people about their military experiences, not being a veteran myself, having no, um, recent military experience in my, in, in my family's past. Um, but it's all just, you know learning and and trying and for me it was I used music a lot as my as my approach too. Um, you know, we're sitting with a Vietnam veteran, my first question would usually be like, what's one song that you remember from your time in Vietnam? And it's like and the answers could be anything. It could be credence. It could be, well, you know, it could be an officer. So we used to hang out in the officers club and they played Tony Bennett, you know, I left my heart in San Francisco or whatever it might be. Um, but that was always a good place. To start, and so it was really rewarding work, and accomplished a lot, and ended up taking a job in Milwaukee at the Milwaukee County Historical Society, and then found myself working in higher ed at the University of Wisconsin at the Center for the Humanities, which was an amazing job. I loved that place, um, working with uh, PhD students um, on on uh, uh, late sort of once they had uh, become ABD, they were available. They were um, they were able to do uh, fellowships that placed them. Essentially, they were um, high-powered internships, but you don't call PhD candidates uh, interns. So fellows, and um, mm-hmm. worked to set up that program with the staff at the Center for the Humanities, along with some project-based work too. And it was kind of, it was really great work because I had had so much public programming experience, and so and so much experience developing partnerships and you know, academics just, just don't have that kind of experience in a lot of ways. And it was, a lot of it was um, translation work, basically trying to figure out how to take their scholarship and translating, you know, some of the core elements and the key themes and topics and using it for, and, you, you know, sharing them with a, a broader audience, but a lot of, a lot of instances with a youth audience too, um, especially from underserved communities in the city of Madison. So, it was a really cool, cool job, and got to work with some really cool projects there. Um, and getting to work on an amazing campus like the University of Wisconsin was was great too. Well,
1: how did you how did you hear about a uh, job opening at Stacks? Because I was just thinking, I mean, you're really the perfect person for the job that you have. The way I feel about Discovery Park of America, how how did that come about?
0: So I. Uh, you know, I I applied for it the old fashioned way, you know, a friend in the field said, hey, you should take a look at this. And I said, well, I'm not even working in a museum right now. And I've never been a museum director. So, and he said, no, you should apply. And, you know, honestly, it was just the right time. I think the stars all aligned and um, was able to, to make it happen. And really what, you know, my pitch was, we have this great museum this great organization with this incredibly compelling story that resonates you know across the world and has resonated for 50 years that's based on this powerful music and this powerful place um, but really what i came, what i sold was a vision for public programming and really trying to connect this story to the city of memphis this does not happen and stacks does not happen anywhere else but memphis tennessee i mean Full stop. It just doesn't. And so, how do we make this story relevant for the next fifty years? As our next sixty years, Stax is sixty-three years old uh, this this October. Um, so, how do we continue to make this story relevant in this music that is, you know, not even for the young people? That are here in our campus every day with the Stacks Music Academy or the Soulsville soul Charter School, it's not even their grandparents' music anymore in a lot of instances. You know, grand Grandpa and Grandma came up in the '70s, or you know, and came up with disco or or, or smooth soul or something, not you know nitty gritty Southern soul. So, um, pulling sort of these key elements and these key themes out of the Stacks story um, that resonate with that resonate across. Across race, across gender, across you know, standard of living, um, and, and really, and across the world too, um, the story is so complex, and there's so many layers to it that we've got. I mean, we all we have our work cut out for us all the time, just like every museum does. But it's a, uh, and this is something I learned in doing military history: the importance of getting things right. You know, I mean, we've when I worked in military history. You know, I really most of the times I could care less what my boss thought about it, uh, thought about how I did. But if a veteran whose story we tried to tell or an exhibit uh, whose stuff we put out on exi- on exhibition or we talked about know, a battle or a campaign that they were a part of. If they came up to me at the end of it, and shook my hand and said, nice job. I was like, OK, we we did what we were supposed to do. And here is the same thing, except now it's not. Vietnam veterans, it's guys like Bobby Manuel that came to Stax in 1967 and was a session musician and a, and a studio engineer. Don Nix, who was one of the very first people to set foot in this place before it was even um, a record company, helping pull the chairs out of the old Capitol Theater and then sticking around for a long time and making an incredible career for himself as a songwriter and a producer as well. And like... You know, I've always said if I can get those guys on my side, and as long as I can keep Deanie Parker from yelling at me or sending me emails in all caps, I think I do okay.
1: (laughs) Yeah, we did. We, you and I, did uh, compare notes, and we have a very good mutual friend in Deanie. Um, I uh, think a lot of her Uh, for for folks who aren't quite aware of the Stack story. Can you give us the uh, elevator? Sure. pitch on Stax as a studio and the history um, that that you're representing there?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So Stax Records started as Satellite Records in 1957 in a garage on the north side of Memphis. If anybody's listening knows Memphis up by the old National Cemetery. Um, and it was started by a guy by the name of Jim Stewart. And Jim is from West Tennessee from Middleton, Tennessee, he's originally, born in 1930. He'll be 90 a week from yesterday. Um, and Mr. Stewart was, came up like a lot of young people during the 40s and the, uh, came up on the Grand Ole Opry and wanted to be country fiddle player and was encouraged to play music by his parents and had a band Um, It was uh, Red Stewart and the Tennessee Cotton Pickers were were his band um, and played in um, honky-tonks and played, you know, theaters um, and other gigs kind of around West Tennessee. And then came to Memphis in the mid-1950s and worked at a bank, was going to Memphis State University and really was taken by the recording industry and borrowed a tape recorder from his barber guy named marshall ellis i'm giving you the non-elevator pitch here, no no Scott.
1: this is this is so, great this is a very um, big elevator
0: so he uh, it's a freight elevator he yeah, um, uh borrowed a tape recorder from his barber named marshall ellis who also had a record company and then recorded a record called blue roses a country record in his wife's uncle's garage and the singer on the record was a guy by the name of fred byler who was the bass player in his band a radio dj and also a, a magician on the side and so that starts this whole crazy story october 1957 making a country record which is not that good um but also kind of charts the course for for, for what we what, what we saw next they make five records in in up in uh, north memphis and realize that they need, if they're going to make this, if they're going to be serious about this, they're going to need a better space and then they are going to need better equipment. So he uh, reaches out to his sister, Stella Axton, and her husband, who float, take out a second mortgage on their house and buy him a brand new Ampex tape recorder. And they open up a studio in Brunswick, Tennessee, so about 30 miles from where I'm sitting here on the corner of College and McLemore in South Memphis. And on one side of the building, they're making records. On the other side of the building, they're selling ice cream and and selling records over there. And it's there in Brunswick where Mr. Stewart works with his first black artists, a group called the Veltones, which was a vocal group that was from Memphis, but mostly was performing across the river in West Memphis. You'll hear the phrase across the river a lot in Stacks history. West Memphis is where the really hot clubs were. Um, And so a lot of musicians got their start over there. They recorded a song called Fool in Love. It's about one minute and 40 seconds. Very simple, sort of, you know, nineteen late 1950s pop R&B doo-wop song. Um, but it's the first record that ever gets any sort of attention on the radio. And that's thanks to a DJ by the name of Rufus Thomas on WDIA. And eventually ends up sending, selling a few copies and really charts the course for Mr. Stewart's future. Um, decides that one... This is the type of music that he wants to make. He was transfixed by Ray Charles, transfixed by the music that was on WDIA. But also, again, if you're a businessman, and he was a businessman, he had a banking background, um, if you sell a record in a certain genre, that's where you're gonna go. And that's where they decided to go. But in order to make that type of music, you're not gonna be able to make those records very easily out in Brunswick, out in the country. So they start looking for a new place. Um, They find an old movie theater in South Memphis on the corner of College of Macklemore called the Capitol Theater. They rent it for about $150 a month. Um, his sister, Estelle Axon, has a son named Packy who's a saxophone player, and he's got some friends named Don Nix, uh, Donald Duck Dunn, who plays bass, Steve Cropper that plays guitar, Charlie Freeman that plays guitar, Wayne Jackson that plays trumpet, And they come in after school, um, going over to uh, Wayne's from across the river in West Memphis, but go to school at Messick High School. And they come in after school on the weekends, pull all the seats out of the theater and turn a movie theater into the recording studio, which eventually becomes Studio A. Um, It is a neighborhood in transition. It was a white working class neighborhood converting shifting to a black working class neighborhood. Um, But it's really a hotbed of musical talent and incredibly talented young people. Um, To me, the really the most powerful part of this story, being able to work together in relative harmony, harmony inside us in in a city uh, as segregated as Memphis was at that time, um, is the opportunity that we're given was given to young people here. Um, Sixteen, 17 years old, every it sounds so cliched and trite, but everybody had a chance here at Stax Records. If you could play, you could play, if you could sing, they gave you a chance to sing. If you couldn't do either of those things but wanted a job, Estelle Action would hire you to work in the satellite record shop or in the case of Deanie Parker, um, who did record two singles and also worked in the record shop. she was given a chance to be, to work in publicity at Stax Records and at the age of I think 20 or 21 becomes the director of publicity at Stax Records. Um, which is a remarkable thing, right? And so that starts this whole amazing thing. Satellite becomes Stacks, ST for Stewart, AX for Axton, and really the the, it, the the rocket takes off, so to speak. Rufus Thomas, Carla Thomas, Booker T and the MGs, the Marquis, later Wilson Pickett, Sam and Dave, um, the amazing Otis Redding, and Isaac Hayes, Staple Singers, so on and so forth. All told, about nine hundred and forty singles uh, released, produced, or distributed by Stax, two hundred and eighty lps, one hundred and sixty seven top ten hits, or something like that. I think I should know that, but fifteen number one songs, um, millions of records sold, just a remarkable story, and again, all happens kind of in this old movie theater in south memphis
1: and and until until Stax as a museum opened up. Um, that story i mean a lot of people who were into music like like you were you know new but a lot of people that story and a lot of that music had had been not forgotten but was not as predominant um on a typical visit to memphis as it is now um i love I, as i told you earlier sax is probably in my top three museums that i've ever visited i mean i think a lot about um as you were mentioning uh, the stars, I was the, the performers, I was thinking of the stacks exhibits that tell those stories. Um, how did stacks, uh, go from, there was nothing there anymore. Um, how did it go from, from, from nothing to what it is today?
0: So stacks was forced into involuntary bankruptcy in 1975, um, December 19th, 1975. And, you know, if we had, we could do a four part, uh, you know, podcast <laughs> series about that. Someday somebody should, actually, because mm-hmm. it's an amazing oh, thing. Right? For um, sure. But, and still being litigated today in some way, shape, or form. Um, but uh, sax closed in 1975, and the building just sat vacant for, you know, almost 15 years. Um, there were some efforts, you know, in the 80s, I think, to try to not necessarily bring music back here, but to do something to honor the music and the musicians and the and the people that made this business go, but really nothing took hold. Finally, the building was sold to a church just down the street for $10 in 1989. They tore the building down. they were never able to raise, excuse me, never be able to raise the funds to, to build what they'd hoped to. So this was just a vacant lot. Finally, in the late 1990s, a group of, um, uh, Citizens and Stacks, what would I call alumni, including Ms. Parker and some other folks, come together and, and again plot the what eventually becomes the Soulsville Foundation. And it's really built on three things: it's the Stacks Museum of American Soul Music, the Stacks Music Academy, which is our after-school music program that serves about 120 students and families um, throughout the Mid South, and then the Soulsville Charter School, which came second, which is the public charter school which serves almost 700 students and families, uh, public um, here in the same campus so the museum uh, opens in 2003 and really you mentioned before like this music sort of fell falls out of favor um you know southern soul music that stacks is able to put out completely falls out of favor really in the 70s and the 80s and memphis's music sort of memphis as a music city as a music hub kind of falls by the wayside too um there's still some places like Royal Studios and High Records, uh, Willie Mitchell, that are still cranking out some great music. Jim Stewart has a different studio; there. they're still making some music. But you know, taste had changed quite a bit. But the one place where this music survived and thrived was was Northern Europe, especially in England. Um, who those the they are just super fans. Um, you know, again, this the pandemic has kept them away from us this summer, which is too bad because. Um, you know, we always describe the Stax European Tour in 1967 as the Beatles coming to America but in reverse. Um, it was so influential to so many to an entire generation of young people to be able to see Otis Redding, Sam and Dave, and Booker T and the MGs. And, you know, those folks that saw that tour and bought those records kept that music alive through um DJ sets and record collecting, but a lot of them were coming to Memphis and seeking out these performers and doing interviews and doing some collecting, not only of records, but also of documents and other materials. So that when Stax came back, um, when the museum came back, it, there really was, you know, there was a strong interest beyond Memphis in this music yet. And again, the music is what well, shows up. I mean, Green Onions, Hold On, I'm Coming, Soul Man, Otis are going to be in I'll Take You There, Respect Yourself. Those songs are going to be in movies and commercials and TV shows much longer than any of us ever will be around. And so it really was harnessing this interest from overseas plus a growing, a growth in Memphis music tourism too with Graceland, the Memphis Rock and Soul Museum, and then also Sun Studios, kind of the big four of Memphis music tourism and really harnessing all that energy but telling a story that is, uh, you know, completely different than those other other ones, and obviously, um, Sun is at the location where Sun Studios was. Graceland is Graceland, um, and we're you know lucky enough to be here on hallowed ground. It's not the original building, but it's you know we have uh, it's the original footprint of of of, of the studio. So um, that's a very powerful thing for us to be able to share and be able to sell. Um, you know, it's even though our studio A is a replica. Musicians, Memphis musicians, and musicians that used to record for Stax Records still feel the specialness of the space. Um, You know, one of the things I absolutely love about the Stax story is um, the happy accidents that happened, and you know, really being able to take a movie theater with a 13 foot high ceiling, which under no circumstance at the at the top end 13 foot, at the bottom end, you know, closer to 20. And under no circumstances should that have been a good space for a recording studio. But they figured out, they, you know, built sound dampening equipment themselves. Estelle Axon made curtains to divide the space in half, which act as a bass trap. And then they figure out just through, phys- you know, dumb luck, which another, in this case is physics, that having two non-parallel surfaces is exactly what you want when you're, when you're recording music and you're playing music. And that's what they had with a sloped floor in an old movie theater. And they just created this almost acoustically sound space that uh, made some of the greatest music of all time. So um, we're able to share that with people through that story.
1: You tell that story so well um, in the in the museum experience, because as you were telling that, I'm remembering the sloped floor um, yeah. that you actually have in the museum. What are some of the other ways that that from you being in the museum business and, you know, uh, running a museum there. What are some of the other ways that, that you tell that story in a way so that it captures people's uh, attention and imagination?
0: Well, I think for a lot of it is, I mean, I, I, have I've really honed in on on the DIY nature of stacks, you know, around here, you know, we have, you know, we say a lot of times we say hashtag because stacks, there's just a thing that happens here. And it is very much a, DIy figure it out figure it out as you go which is the museum business kind of by and large in a lot of ways too again we're living we're trying to figure out how to keep a museum open during a pandemic there's no manual for that right um, so stacks was very much that way and I think that's something a lot of people can relate to I think they appreciate the innovation they they appreciate the improvisation that happens here um, and it was very and again it's just the the opportunity for people to be a part of that. Um, again, it, it sounds, I'll say it again, it sounds trite, but everybody had an opportunity. Um, and, it's, and so I think the one of the big things that we're able to, to, to sell to people, especially the young people, especially those who are at the Stacks Music Academy and at the charter school, is that's what imbues the work we're doing today, is this idea of opportunity and empowerment this was you know it, the music business is is the keyword in the phrase music business is business it is always a business right but sharing the lessons that can be learned from stacks past teaching them to our young musicians performers today um, the music academy right now is trying to develop a way to have its own publishing but then also be able to share and teaching young people how to keep their publishing which if there's any burgeoning songwriters out there always keep your publishing. That is how you make money forever is is with publishing. Um, And so there's a lot of lessons learned, um, you know, from that. So we're able to share those things. But again, I think it's just the appreciation for how these songs that people love, whether they be Otis Running, Sam and Dave, whatever, to see how they're made in so many ways and how simply everything was done and how it was done collaboratively, how it was done together. This was not a songwriting factory like Motown was. That's what worked for Motown. That would not have worked here. Um, that's one of the things. It is a collaborative effort. That's Otis Redding getting in Wayne, Wayne Jackson and Andrew Love's ears and humming horn lines for his songs. That's um, plunking around on an acoustic guitar with Steve Copper and trying to figure out lyrics to songs. That's Steve Copper and Eddie Floyd you know, retreating to a hotel room at the, at the Lorraine Hotel to write, you know, knock on wood or raise your hand or whatever the, whatever the song might be. Um, it's that kind of creative spirit that I think is really powerful to people and then the creative freedom that the artist had. Um, if it was good, it got on a record, you know? And again, when the business started to take over, you know, again, I'm not, I'm not idealistic enough to say all, not over 900 of the, all 900 of the singles they put out are good. They're not, Um, but there's, you know, some timeless music here and it's really fun to be able to, again, take a record from 1957 and say in X number of moves, how did they get from Blue Roses to Hot Buttered Soul by Isaac Hayes? And, you know, that to me is a powerful story and that is one person really at the center of it, Jim Stewart, sort of understanding that music business, but also understanding what he did not know. And bringing in people that did know it, like his sister, like Al Bell, Um, and again, like some of these musicians who are incredible songwriters, but also performers. And in a lot of ways, frankly, you know, in the case of Isaac Hayes, just like straight up geniuses and basically saying, I trust you. You've got something. Here are the keys. Make it happen.
1: Well, and with with that body of work that you get to work with, um, I know the Bicentennial uh, recently hit and you put together like a contest uh, by yeah. picking 200 songs. What were some of the 200 songs you picked? And tell tell me a little bit about that promotion, because I love data and I love yeah. uh, I love things like that. So tell me um, how that came about and and also eventually tell us who won. <laughs> um, so it was Memphis's, it was both Memphis's and
0: Shelby County's uh, bicentennial last year. Um, both were founded in 1819, the city founded in the spring, and then Shelby County in the fall of 2019, or about 1819. So to sort of build on that, we created a, uh, we, we coined the phrase, it was really funny, I our director of education, Kimberly Hooper Taylor, like, I love Kimberly for so many reasons, but one of the things she's best at is she's so good at creating acronyms and like a turn of the phrase. And she came up with buy soul 10 probably like in January mm-hmm. and sent it to me in an email. And I was like, that's cheesy. But then by the time spring rolled around, I was like, that's a really good idea. We're going to keep that. <laughs> Our promotion last year was the buy soul 10 And it basically was 200 soul songs for 200 years of Memphis. So we created a playlist, which is still accessible on on Spotify. you Just do a, um, Stacks Museum has a page with some playlists and such. It's public, um, but it's a great list. I think all of them are still up. They take them, some of them come off every once in a while. But essentially it's 200 songs recorded in Memphis, you know, soul songs recorded in Memphis. So not just here at Stacks, Stacks, American Royal, Sounds of Memphis, countless other studios. Um, and also includes artists that you know came in here just for a session. So, like, we included "Son of a Preacher Man" by Dusty Springfield, which, of course, is an indelible um, you know song recorded at American Studios. That is, it's just it's Memphis through and through. How that song sounds, and plus the hybrid nature of the recording. It has the Memphis horns, which are our guys, and plus the American Studio crew. So we chose two hundred songs. We did an online survey plus we did in person that folks could fill out here at the museum. We spread them around at record at the record stores here in town. And essentially to come up with the top ten songs and Memphis soul songs. And I didn't do it, but if I would have sat down and wrote down what I thought were going to be the top ten songs, I would have gotten probably eight of them. Um maybe more. I mean it was very much again it's it's you give a list of people, you give 200 songs to people, they're still going to all gravitate to the ones that they know for the most part. And so of course, like, so speaking of our friends from Northern Europe, we had, we, it got a lot of circulation on our Facebook page and we have a lot of uh, friends from, from England and, and Germany and France that, that follow us, that come to visit us and that are you know obsessed with stacks. I could always tell when I got one of their ballots because it would be all ten votes for the most obscure songs,
1: <laughs> um,
0: which I loved, of course. But it was really exciting for me because I discovered some artists and some other music that I didn't quite know about. Um, we have a couple of good friends that are DJs here in the city that you know floated me a few 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 tracks that we should include. Um, so we did an unveiling um, last August. Hard to believe it was almost a year ago. We had a DJ come in and we played the uh, the ten songs and then had um either it was as much as we could somebody somebody associated with the song a performer a songwriter unveiled the song but also some current memphis musicians too which is a good way we really try to be a good advocate for the current memphis music industry and have many of those performers play here as possible so we involve some of them but we had don bryant the great songwriter um and Making having a career renaissance here in his late 70s, just had a new album come out with Fad Possum. Um, his wife is Ann Peebles, and he co wrote um, uh, I Can't Stand the Rain, which I think was number 10, maybe. Um, But we also had the Mitchell sisters who are Willie Mitchell's daughters, you know, come present an Al Green song. We didn't get the Reverend to come do it, but um, and basically unveiled the songs and then played the songs um, before the group. And then the other cool thing we did is we had a local artist uh, named Juman Bullock, who's actually our neighbor here in Soulsville, create 10 original pieces of artwork for each song. And so he got a sneak preview of what the top 10 was going to be. And then he was able to paint those works and we had an exhibit up throughout the summer and the fall. So um, the number one song was from day one to the end of, to the I think we did it for 45 days on day one, it was green onions by Booker T and the MGs. And on day 45, it was green onions by Booker T and <laughs> the MGs and um, no surprise there. I mean, it's so funny again, you know, when you come into our museum, we get people that are hardcores that know everything, but will still find something that they either something new to learn, or a lot of times discover a record on our wall. They haven't seen. We have all but 17 of the stacked singles up on our wall. We have all the LPs. Um, so there's always something new that they can discover a new song, whatever new photo. Um, but there are a lot of people that come in that just find themselves here. But as soon as they watch Our intro film, which although it is old, is really great. They're going to see a artist or hear a song that they know, and almost everybody has heard Green Onions. They might not know what it's called. They might not know who made who made the song, or might not know who recorded the song. But um, they know they know that riff, and so it was no surprise that Green Onions was number one. Um, I thought Soul Man was going to give it a run for its money for a little bit, but it was um, it was definitely a Booker T and the MGs, Al Green, Sam and Dave, Otis Redding, kind of a uh, top 10.
1: Well, and and um, Green Onions was a huge hit and has no vocals. So it's just, yeah, you know, that's the crazy thing.
0: Yeah, and I mean, it's Green Onions was the first LP that Stax produced as a company um, in 62. Um, one of their first big hits, um, you know, after Last Night by the Marquise, which is another instrumental, except for Floyd Newman saying doing a couple of voiceover things in the middle of the song. Um, but yeah, it was a massive hit and just really kind of charts the course for, for, for the company and gave them sort of the foundation to build on, that they could create a sound around other artists like Otis Redding and, and so on.
1: Well, th- thank you for the work that you all are doing there. It's amazing that you're there in Memphis and you're not only making this music, um, Making people aware of this music who might not be otherwise, but also the work that you're doing um, with the the camps and the school. Why don't you hit just a little bit about that before we go? Because I think that's so important. The work that you're doing.
0: Yeah, we um, so like I mentioned, the Stacks Music Academy is an after-school music program it serves about 100 students and family a year, families a year. It's actually the first thing that the Solzo Foundation started um, started in 2000 in a high school in a middle school cafeteria. Um, and has grown to become this remarkable program that has worked with so many students, um, traveled all over the world, um, performed with Isaac Hayes, Mavis Staples, Booker T. Jones, Steve Copper, um, Sam Moore, Huey Lewis, um, any Mabel John, any number of great um, artists, both related to Stacks and just fans of Stacks, um, and really kind of is the Stacks legacy and music of Stacks is at the foundation, but really what we're seeing is an expansion of that. And you know, I wouldn't say it's a modernization of our sound, but it's taking into elements of modern music that our young people are listening to as well. So incorporating some elements of hip hop, a lot of gospel, um, contemporary R and B. But the thing that I'm most excited about is really is this new songwriting program, which was kind of kickstarted by, uh, Donation from the Levi's Foundation and Justin Timberlake last summer, JT came to campus, and worked with our students, which was an amazing experience for them. Hard to believe that was a year ago. That was August already, too. Um, And so that's exciting. And again, to really teach these young people the business side uh, 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 of music. Um, and again, it's just empowering them to giving them as much opportunity as, they, as we can, but then empowering them with the knowledge that they can carry that forward. And then the Soulsville Charter School, which is, uh, serves grades 6 through 12, um, public charter school, you know, aligned with the Shelby County School system. Um, really 100% graduation rate. Um, everybody sort of set on their ways to a post, post-secondary pathway of their choosing. Some of them might be going to a liberal arts school out east or, a, or one of the Ivies or, you know, Tennessee College of Applied Technology for, 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 uh, for to become a hairdresser or some join the military and some go to work. But really, it's, again, providing them with the tools that they need to, to lead a successful life and really to be informed citizens and be, be part of the community fabric here, here in the city of Memphis so, or, or wherever they end up. And so just remarkable work, but again, it's all this stuff that's built off of the foundation of stacks and really what was, you know, I think it's so funny, you know, talking about you know unintended consequences or happy accidents and really, you know, Mr. Stewart, Ms. Axton, and Al Bell, never in their wildest dreams could have imagined what came, has, has come of this tiny little record company in Memphis, Tennessee, um, and it's an exciting thing for me and, you know, knowing what we do here at the museum, but knowing that this legacy is going to live on through all these young people and, and what they do in their careers and in their lives. It's it's a pretty powerful thing. And we've all got really have those three folks to thank.
1: Excellent. Well, thank you so much for, for joining us today. And if, if anybody hasn't visited Stacks, I highly man checking it out whether you're from this area or you're visiting it it truly is a moving experience and um, it'll help you uncover a little bit about memphis music history that i guarantee you you didn't realize so thanks a lot
0: yeah thank you guys really appreciate it
1: thank you for listening
0: to real foot forward be sure to like subscribe and leave us a review start planning your visit to discovery park of america by visiting discoveryparkofamerica.com And also be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for the latest updates.